Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. So last week, Casey and I went on a fun date night. We went out to the great Jones County Fair, and I am an Iowa boy, so I grew up going to the fair. I love the fair. I enjoy everything about it. One of the interesting things about the fair that's, that for me over time, as I've watched, I've been like, huh, well, there you go, is the food. Uh, the food of the fair has evolved over time. There's always been the traditional things, but like I remember when the state fair came out with the, the, the fried like stick of butter. Did you hear about this thing? It supposedly it tasted like French toast. I never had it. I was just more concerned, like, do they give you the blood thinner with the butter? Like, do they give you the baby aspirin? Do you have to go somewhere? But the, the thing I did try, I didn't try the butter. I, I did try the deep fried Oreos. Now, this was a very unique and kind of confusing experience for me because I know if I have a deep fried corn dog, I'm dipping that thing in ketchup. And if I have an Oreo by itself, I'm dipping that thing in milk all day, every day, right? But when you combine the two things, I just became very, it was a confusing experience. And I go, if, if someone were to go, now go dip that in something, I say, I don't know, is that what tartar sauce is for? Or like, uh, ranch goes with everything, but that would be a stretch, right? I, it was a confusing experience. And I think that for some people, the same can be true for the Bible and money. So I think separately, we understand the basic principles of, of the Bible and, and what the Bible says is true. And I think we just in general understand basic principles of, of money. But then when you, when you bring the two things together and overlay one on top of the other, I think sometimes people get confused. I think they start asking questions like, so is money evil? Like if I have less money, am I more righteous? Does God love me more if I have less money? Is it okay for me to strive to make more money? Or is that wrong? Should I feel guilty about that and not do that? I think people have legitimate questions. And we have been going through the book of Proverbs. And the Proverbs has been showing us what it looks like to skillfully live for God and the realities and the nuances of life. And this morning, we're going to answer that or take that and then apply money to it, okay? So what I want to do is I want to talk about the temptations of money, the pitfall that comes with money, the solution or the cure, and then if we were to live out that solution or cure, what would our response look like? But before I dive into Proverbs, before we dive into money, I want to give a bit of like money theology I want to give some boundary markers and some just like a basic foundation. And thankfully, Jesus and the Bible have a lot to say about money. So we've got plenty of bricks and mortar to work with to build this foundation. But first of all, I want to be very clear this morning. I am a pastor and this is a sermon. I am not a financial advisor and this is not a financial planning meeting about how to manage your money. This morning, I am getting to the, we are getting to the heart of the issue, the heart of the matter in God's word. So with that in mind, let's give some basic principles on money. First, money is not evil. First Timothy 6, 9 through 10 says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but money itself is not evil. Money is neutral. Money is a tool. So for example, it's like words. 
Words are neutral. They are a tool. I can use my words to, to build others up, to encourage them. I could use my words for evil, to slander, to gossip, and to tear people down. Money's the same way. You can use your money for great good or horrible evils, right? But money itself is not evil. It's neutral. The second principle I would say is this. Our money is not our money. It is all God's. Psalm 24, one says that the earth and everything in it, it is all God's. I remember uh, my dad a while ago telling me this, everything that you think you have, that you think you own, you don't. It's all God's. Now, what we are called to do as human beings is is to utilize the, the money that God's given us and be good stewards of God's money. Does that make sense? So so that's a basic principle. It's not our money. It's all God's money. We're called to be good stewards. And then finally, I think it's worth saying this. God has given us great gifts to enjoy in this lifetime. And there is a way to enjoy those gifts without being consumed by those gifts, idolizing or worshiping those gifts. So let me give an example. Vacations. I think that it is okay and actually encouraged for Christians to go on vacations. I don't, I don't think Christians have to feel guilty about going on a vacation. All right, I'm actually in a week and a half, we are going to uh, the Lake of the Ozarks. We do this every year with my family at the end of the summer. I can't wait, super excited. Now, that all being said, if your whole life, if my whole life was revolved around vacations, that's all I thought about, that I couldn't wait till the next vacation and I would be crushed or destroyed if I couldn't have my vacation, that's a problem. Now we're leaning towards idolatry, worshiping a good gift. So there's a difference between enjoying God's good gifts and ruining them by worshiping them. So, which means when it comes to money, it's all about the heart. Jesus in the gospels, he's always getting to The heart. Where is our heart? Money can be an outlet for a very evil heart and dishonor the Lord. Money can also be an outlet for a very good heart to honor the Lord. And what's so interesting is that sin issues of greed and selfishness with money are not primarily concerned with how much you have in your bank account. Let me show you what I mean. I looked up uh, Merriam-Webster's definition of greed. I understand this isn't the Bible, but I think sometimes these definitions are clarifying and helpful. It said this, greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed, and even put in parentheses, such as money. Now, can that defini- definition be true of you if you have a lot of money? Absolutely. Can that definition be true of you if you don't have a lot of money? Absolutely. So again, as we start walking through these key texts, I want you to remember it is all about the heart. So let's go to Proverbs chapter 30. That is our key text this morning. Proverbs chapter 30, uh, verse 1 tells us that these are the words of Agur. And he is speaking to Ithiel and Ukal. Man, there's three names that didn't make it into the 21st century. I've served at Candeo Kids a handful of times, and I have not met any Agur, Ithiels, or Ukals. If you are new to Candeo and you have Ithiel as your son, more power to you. That's great. Can't wait to meet you in Candeo Kids. Agur, though, is speaking to these two. And in verse 7, he, he, he talks about this prayer. He, he's giving this prayer, and he says this. So he's talking to the Lord. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. 
Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of God. So he's praying to God. He says, Don't keep me from deceitful words. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Give me what I need, nothing more and nothing less. Now, when you hear that, you've got to go back to the, the lens I just gave you, the boundary markers I just gave you. This is what the author is not saying. The author is not saying that if you are wealthy, you are immediately evil. Or if you are in poverty and don't have money, you are immediately evil. That if you're middle class or middle of the road, you're righteous all the time and everyone else is evil and wrong. That is not what the author is saying. The reality is that you could live in any of those categories with a godly life and an honoring heart to the Lord. There are people who are wealthy that honor the Lord with their lives. There are people who are poor who honor the Lord with their lives. The Bible actually gives us examples of both. So that's not what the author is saying. Here, here's what the author is saying, is that both wealth and poverty bring unique temptations with them. So for the person in wealth, there is a temptation to have too much and be consumed by money and deny God. This is the person who neglects God, who is not grateful for the gifts God has given him and is, is proud, right? It says, who needs God? I don't need God. I've got a great bank account, Roth IRA, 401k, all those things. I'm good. I don't need God. And, and, and Agar here is going, oh Lord, please don't let me walk down that path where I get to that spot. That is a temptation for those with a lot of money. Those without money though, the poor, there's another unique temptation. There's a temptation to be discontent or to be desperate. And then you find yourself lying, cheating, and stealing, which also dishonors the Lord as you sin against him. So the author sees those two temptations. He knows his flesh and he goes, oh God, keep me from both of those sin paths. Please keep me from both. He is taking his sin very, very seriously. Those are temptations. What is the ultimate pitfall of those temptations? For both of those people, the pitfall is this. They are no longer trusting in God. They are trusting in their money. That is the pitfall. A mark of a greedy heart is not that it doesn't just enjoy money, but trusts in it. Where do we see this in the book of Proverbs? Proverbs eleven twenty eight says it this way. This will be on the screen. Anyone trusting in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. So pay attention to the language here. The antithesis of trusting in riches is not poverty, it's righteousness. Because the righteous person doesn't trust in their riches, they trust in God. If you put all of your trust in money, it is a foolish path because money is fleeting. Proverbs 28, four through five, this won't be on the screen, but it tells us to not wear yourself out to be rich because as soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears for it makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky. Wealth will sprout wings and fly away at a simple glance. Proverbs eleven seven says, any hope placed in wealth will vanish. Ultimately, wealth will leave us in our lifetime, 
fly away, or when we die because we can't take it with us where we're going. There is a story about John D. Rockefeller. If you don't know who John D. is, he's probably one of the most wealthy people that ever lived for sure in his lifetime. And when he died, somebody asked his accountant this question, how much did John D. leave? And the accountant very simply said, he left all of it. Jesus affirms this reality in the gospel of Luke. In Luke 12, Jesus speaks a parable, and I actually just want to read it for us this morning. In Luke 12, 13, someone from the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? He told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them this parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The person in this parable put all of his trust in his money, his barns, his grains, and he goes, sweet, I can take it easy the rest of my life. And the irony of the parable is that night his life was to be taken from him and his barns and his grains were not going to protect him. Trusting in money might seem like a good idea, but it is shifting sand. It is a horrible foundation to put your life on, and it will not protect you, ultimately. Listen to Proverbs 18, 10 through 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. The one who trusts in his money, thinks that he's protected, but it's all a figment of his imagination. It's an imaginary wall. Contrast that with the God of the universe who is a strong tower and does provide true protection. I think it's generally true that you want to trust in people or things that will actually protect you. So let's go hypothetical scenario. Uh, go back to your elementary school days and you're on the playground. Imagine you've been bullied by this, this other kid named Jimmy. And it's been a rough year and, and, and it's the next day and he's back at recess and Jimmy's coming towards you and it's going to be another rough day. But then magically you look to your right and you see Dwayne Johnson, also known as The Rock, standing there going, I will protect you. And you look to your left and you see your invisible friend, imaginary friend, Charlie, whom you've had since you were five years old. Now, as Jimmy's coming towards you, what are you gonna do? Like, you're gonna go stand behind Dwayne Johnson. He's built like a tank. You're gonna be fine. You're not gonna get touched by Jimmy that day. If you choose to go behind Charlie, your imaginary friend, it's gonna be another rough day for you on the playground, right? Now, you, you hear that scenario and you go, That's, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, Jordan. And I go, Absolutely. That's the point. That's the point of Proverbs 18. 
You want to talk about ridiculous scenario. Are you going to trust in money or wealth, which is an imaginary wall or the God of the universe who, who loves you infinitely? Who are you going to trust? Because here's the catch. You can't pick both. You can't ultimately trust in money and God. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't put Jesus on the throne of your life until you first take money off of it. Jesus states this in the New Testament, but this is also affirmed in the Old Testament, in the book of Job. Very quickly, Job was a, a chapter one tells us, a wealthy man full of integrity. And one of our elders, Zach, uh, pointed this out. I thought this was helpful. That's a rare thing. For a guy to have that much money and then to have the holiness and integrity to match that or supersede that, kind of a rare thing. And so I think we should lean in when someone like Job is speaking to us. But this is what Job says in Job 31. This will be on the screen. If I place my confidence in gold or called fine gold my trust, if I have rejoiced because my wealth is great or because my own hand has acquired so much, if I have gazed at the sun when it was shining or at the, the moon moving in splendor so that my heart would secretly, uh, was secretly enticed and I threw them a kiss, this would also be an iniquity deserving punishment for I have denied God above. What Job is doing here is he is connecting putting your trust in money, in gold, and denying God. You can't fully trust in money and God. You must pick. Now, I this morning realized that I am talking through a lot of nuances of money that the Bible gives us. But at this point, I do want to be abundantly direct and clear. If you put your trust in money, ultimately, it will only lead to destruction. It will destroy you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It is a temptation that can infect us at any of us, at any point in our lives, and it will shipwreck us. We have to take this seriously. We need to have a wartime mindset. The devil would love for you. He would love for you to be consumed by money. He loves it when we find our ultimate satisfaction and joy and security in money. But the Bible is calling us to fight that temptation, no matter how much money you have. So be honest with yourself this morning. Honestly ask yourself this question. Do I trust in money more than I trust in Jesus? Like if you were to pick one, like I, that you, you would have all of your debt eliminated and the, an awesome 401k or mutual funds or whatever, like that you could have all those things and you put your trust in that or the person of Jesus Christ. Where are you going? Where are you leaning? If, you, if I'm being honest with you this morning, I am tempted to lean this way at times. What that looks like in my life, I think I've shared this before from the stage, but I, I mean, going after our student debt, which is a great thing. But if you ask Casey, there are times in my life where that becomes the consuming center. That's all I think about. I was convicted recently by just how much I'm looking at or checking into our checking savings account. Because I'm, I'm trying to find my security in those things, right? 
Those things aren't bad things. It's just, what are you gonna put your ultimate trust in? Now, I have this fight in my heart and that's why I love Agur's prayer in Proverbs 30. He's saying, don't let me fall into these temptations. Keep me from that pitfall of trusting in money and help me to trust you infinitely more. Now the question becomes, how do we do that? Because it's not just like try really hard to not do these things. How do we actually avoid those pitfalls? Well, let's talk about the solution. In 2001, Disney came out with a movie called Atlantis. Now, I think this isn't quite as popular of a movie. I don't think it did as well in the box office, but essentially it's about this historian, Milo Thatch. And his grandpa searched for the lost city of Atlantis, but never found it. So Milo's whole life was dedicated to finishing what his grandpa started. He is gonna find the lost city of Atlantis. That's his whole life goal. That's all that mattered to him. Everybody around him thought he was crazy, but he goes, it's real and I'm gonna go find it. And as the story goes, somebody eventually funds the quest and uh, they, they eventually find um, the city. That's, I don't think that's a spoiler, um, right? I, it would be a pretty horrible movie if for like an hour and a half, they're like, where is it? And then they get to the end, it's like, Miles like, I guess we couldn't find it. And then the credits roll, you know? You go, that's why that probably wouldn't have done so well. Um, but the point of the, the matter is like, okay, so Milo, he has his eyes fixed on something. And nothing else matters. The, the treasures of the city he's living in, they don't matter. He could care less. He's like, I just need to get to Atlantis. I need to find it. That's the treasure. When your eyes are fixed on a great treasure, everything else in life seems to fade away. And that treasure is the only thing that truly matters to you. And Jesus speaks to this reality in Matthew 13, 44. He gives another parable and he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, those are three important words, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Now on the outside looking in, everybody thought this guy was crazy. He sold everything for a field, what? But this guy don't care because he knows what he's found. And the treasure was worth it. At all costs, it was worth it. It was a short-term sacrifice for a long-term reward. And what is the great treasure that Jesus is actually talking about in this parable? It's the kingdom of heaven. Or maybe put another way, the kingly rule of Jesus. That is the great treasure. Our great and merciful king and his rule, that's the treasure. And because of the infinite worth of Jesus, we can sacrificially open up our hands to everything in our life as we go and find that great treasure. We stop valuing temporary things that will disappear and we start valuing eternal things that are infinite. Everything else in the world fades away because we've found something or more specifically someone infinitely better. So what's the cure for trusting in money? It's finding a greater treasure and being ready to give up everything for that treasure. If you are satisfied in Christ, everything else in the world doesn't matter. You don't starve for the things of the world. You, I mean, you could take it or leave it. It doesn't matter because you found Christ. If you want to stop love, loving money, start falling in love with Jesus. 
If you want to loosen your grip on the things of this world, start clinging to the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, everything else in the world, including money, gets put in its place. So yes, we are to be aware of the temptations and the pitfalls that come with money. But more importantly, we are to find our greatest treasure in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens when we do that? Well, here's the response. First, I would say is this, is thankfulness. Thankfulness, a heart of thankfulness, primarily that God would send his one and only son to die on the cross for guilty sinners like you and me. It's a pretty good thing to be thankful for. But on top of that, we are thankful for what God has provided for us in this life. The good gifts that he has given us for what he's done and what he continues to do. Be thankful. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I think we get that one, right? Be thankful. But on top of that, you find contentment. And this is the key. No matter how much money you have, you find contentment. I'm going to go to 1 Timothy 6. And uh, you can go there if you want. It'll be on the screen. We're actually going to spend the rest of our time this morning in 1 Timothy 6. Um, But as Paul is writing Timothy, talking about false doctrine and giving him some warnings, in verse 6, he says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the back half of that passage should affirm everything that we just talked about, right? But but look at the very beginning in verse 6. What does it say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what is the definition of contentment? How would you define contentment? Being content. I'm sure there's a lot of definitions that are out there. I heard one pastor define it this way, and I loved it. He said, contentment is wanting what you have. There's a four-word definition for you. It's wanting what you have. So let me ask you this morning, do you want what you have? As you look at your job, your salary, the car you own, the house you live in, the neighborhood that you live in, do you want what you have? Are you grateful for the, the things that the Lord has given you in your life? Or as you look at your job, salary, bank account, car, house, neighbor, all these things, as you look at all those things, Do you find yourself wanting what others have? Is what you have never actually enough? Are you content with what you have or are you consumed by what you don't have? Where is your heart? Whether you have a little or you have a lot, are you content? Are you content? If not, if you're not, if you're going, yeah, I'd answer that maybe a little differently, then go back to the solution. Go back to finding your greatest treasure in the person of Jesus Christ. Then you'll find yourself being thankful. You'll find yourself being content. And on top of that, you're going to find yourself being generous. Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. This will be the last passage we read this morning. It says this. 
Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all the things to enjoy. Again, a lot of what we talked about this morning. But then 18 says, instruct them, those who are rich, to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. What are those who are rich to do? Be rich in good works. Be generous. Share with others. When you do this, you are not storing up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. You are, you are storing up for yourselves treasure ultimately in heaven. Now, there is a strong temptation with money, as we've talked about this morning, to put our certainty on the wrong things. And when we do that, our, our fist closes. There, there are a lot of people in this world that are really good with their money, but their mindset is, it's my money. And when your ultimate trust, hope, and joy is found in those things, your fist tightens. But think about what it would look like if you actually found Jesus as your greatest treasure. You would be free to give generously because you trust in the one who provides for all of your needs. You'd be the kind of person that sees the big picture through the lens of heaven. You would not be focused on the temporary. You'd be focused on the eternal. You would give your first and your best to Jesus because you know he's worth it. I recently just finished the book through Gates of Splendor, story of five men who went into the Alka tribe to win them to Christ all five of them slaughtered and killed. One of those men, Jim Elliott, famously said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I've seen this play out in people's lives, like people who have their greatest treasure in the person of Jesus Christ, and maybe you have too. I've hung out with people with lots of money and with not a lot of money. But when their greatest treasure is in Jesus, you would never know it. Because money's not the consuming center of their life. Jesus is. Their identity is not in what I have. It's in who they have. They didn't have tunnel vision on the temporary. They had an eternal lens on life. They could have more money or less money, and it just, it didn't matter. They were content. They had Jesus, right? And these people, and again, you, maybe you've seen this. These people are not only generous, they are joyful. In their joy, they give. Because they're not striving for earthly treasures. They've already found the great treasure. And his name is Jesus. They look at the sacrifice on the cross. Ultimately, they look at the cross and they see everything that Jesus has done for them. And they step back and they would go, what else would my response be? Look at what Jesus has done. Christian, remember, remember this. We are not home yet. This is not our home. Our home is a place we haven't been yet. It's in heaven with our great king and our great treasure, which means we are aliens and foreigners in this world. And we are called Christian to live accordingly. First, Tim, first Timothy 6, 19 that last verse says we are called to live this kind of life with our money so that we may take hold of what is truly life.
And true life is found in finding the greatest treasure, in finding and treasuring and valuing the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so grateful for what you've done. Lord, you've you've taught me a lot recently on what it looks like to be thankful for what you've done. Jesus, you gave everything on the cross for us. So as we, as we see the cross and what you've done, we turn around and go, what, what else would our response be? But to let go of the things of this world and to cling tightly to you as our greatest treasure. So Jesus, we are so incredibly grateful. And Lord, as we, as we find our, our great treasure in you, Lord, help us to be the kind of people who are content who want what we have, who are generous towards others, who see needs and act and move. You've given so much to us. Let's turn around and be those kind of people who do so much for others. The, the kind of things that people would look at us and kind of turn their head sideways and go, why, now why would they do that? And we, we could tell them, oh, it's because of our great King. It's because of our great treasure in Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are better than anything this world has to offer. And so when we find our greatest joy and treasure in you, everything else falls to the wayside. Everything else fades away. And so, Lord, help us to have that kind of heart. And in light of that, would we worship you this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.